prisoner of words unsaid. Just lonely feelings left away in my head. Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to Consensus Podcast. I hope everyone is doing well, keeping safe and staying alert. Um, so just want to introduce ourselves uh, today. Um, so first of all, before we introduce um, everyone on the panel today, we're going to just um, reshare our social media. So please feel free to join the conversation, share your views um, and join us in this conversation. And our um, our URL is the underscore consensus underscore and that's the same on twitter and on instagram and please use the hashtag consensus podcast and you can find us on all mainstream platforms soundcloud apple Podcasts, spotify etc and also very exciting we now have a new newsletter that we are producing every two weeks um, and this will go out with every show and every episode um, so you can always find the link on our social media and please sign up um, so you do, you can receive an email directly um, and yeah join the conversation and we've got lots of top tips um, for coping and surviving and information during this time on COVID. So let's introduce ourselves. First of all I'll introduce myself, my name is Shaka, I'm representing the Green Party and we also have Jen. Hi, I'm Jen, and I am um, a member of the Labour and Cooperative Party. Thank you, Jen. And we also have Mel. Hi, guys. I'm Mel. I'm a Liberal Democrat member. Lovely. Thank you, Mel. And we also have Koyin. Hey, guys. I'm Koyin, and I'm a Conservative supporter. So, as you can hear... Um, we're introducing, I'm introducing everyone because we're not in the same room. Um, we are recording this um, in our homes. We're still officially on lockdown, um, still officially physical, physically distancing. Um, so we are uh, recording this online. So um, thank you, everyone. So let's just, uh, just to introduce the show for today, we are doing, um, we're doing a show on information. Um, and generally talking about information in general um, and talking about this in relation to COVID, but also more generally in terms of how we receive information and how this is quite imperative. Um, so it's a large topic. So, um, you know, we're not going to be able to cover everything today. Um, and I mean, we'll, we'll obviously be looking at uh, specifically uh, during this time in COVID, how we receive and utilise and find information sources. Um, and we believe this is an important show because information uh, forms an important part of the way in which we gain knowledge about and come to understand our world. The mediums of knowledge that align with our own experience of the, experiences of the world very much mediate the decisions we make um, and permeates our understanding and our personal and collective experiences. So knowledge, and more specifically reliable knowledge, is an imperative force for good in the world. Access to reliable and truthful knowledge shapes civil society and the direction of mankind. It is very important not to underestimate the ways in which our spectrum of knowledge is shaping our reality at every moment in our lives. This has been true at all times in history, but is ever more highlighted during the time of COVID as knowledge becomes more obviously a direct life and death situation. 
Truth has been the subject of philosophers and sages since the beginning of existence. At its core, the search for truth is the seeking for discernment about who we are and the nature of reality. This is central to how we organize ourselves socially. So power and knowledge are inevitably connected. For those with knowledge become powerful as they gain uh, closer proximity to truth. And inversely, those with power also able to control access to knowledge and therefore maintain power through controlling the perceptions of others. Um, and this is re relevant because our society, uh, particularly in, in Britain, is often uh, described as a technocratic society, which is to say that governments and society at large uh, defer much of our decision making to experts in their fields, such as scientists, economic, ec economists and engineers. And this technocratic knowledge is then interpreted and shared through the lens of mainstay sources and information such as media and newspapers um, and education. So this means that we entrust a lot of our understanding of the world to others who have access to forms of knowledge and not directly through our own study and discovery of it or, or our own experiences. Um, when knowledge is monopolized in this way, um, and when we ourselves are not equipped with adequate reasoning due to gaps in our own field of knowledge, this leaves us vulnerable to manipulation, misinformation and misdirection. Um, and we'll look at a few of those terms in terms of the meaning of those terms, um, in a moment. Um, and this is important, um, because if we do not have the ability to directly acquire and adequately evaluate knowledge and the sources of knowledge ourselves, then we are reliant on the words and the direction of those that do. Trust and power are not always the best of bedfellows, as we know. In this scenario, knowledge becomes a form of currency and power and, um, and power as it, can, um, as it can be used to influence decision making. Um, and... Again, this is important because truth used to be something that we we were collectively invested in as a society, as a collective, as a community, um, and something we still think we can attain through the methodology of science. We hold this to be true, yet most people don't understand science, um, and we are still reliant on those that are able to study and interpret data in particular ways, um, including those that are able to direct um direct the data that's even studied in the first place. Um, so this is all to say that when we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic, facing life-changing effects, um, knowledge becomes even more powerful and even more valuable. Um, we live in an information age whereby we have access to knowledge and information on unparalleled, unparalleled rates, you know, internet, etc. Um, and and this is this is true more so than any time in our history. Um, and therefore, what we see is a war on information. Um, I've, I've just watched a really interesting documentary or not documentary, an interview. It talks about the information ecology, essentially a, a kind of an ecology of information, the way in which information is created, shared, etc. So this war on information um, is essentially about who has access to, to information, who controls the source of information, who's given credibility and credence. So um, in this show, we'll be looking at uh, information during the pandemic, also more generally, how it's been disseminated and how it's been shaped through a political lens. Um, and also our access to alternative information sources or alternative narratives, sometimes called conspiracy theories. Um, and again, just looking at 
um, those wars on information um, and who potentially has the monopoly on truth um, and who we who we consider reliable news sources and how we collectively decide what is fake news and conspiracy theories. So that's a nice juicy introduction there. So let's um, get into the themes and discussion points. I just want to start off as I always do when I lead discussion is um, is a a quote um, from a history lecturer professor called Bill Foster. And he says, accurate scientific economic, political and social information about what is happening somewhere is suddenly valuable everywhere. It's literally a matter of life and death. We might just be tempted to remember what we lost when we started to abandon trying to find truths together. And essentially what he's talking about is the way in which our overload of information has sometimes made us give up on the idea that there's even such thing as truth. Um, So uh, starting off with the kicking off with a definition um, of misinformation is uh, to give someone false or inaccurate information. Um, so just just to kick off before we get into the government um, and in terms of how the handling of the COVID crisis, what are our general thoughts on that um, in terms of the introduction, the way information is shared, our ideas around truth, our ideas around information? Um, I definitely agree that sort of truth and power are intrinsically linked with each other. Um, That if you hold credibility, like you were saying, then you're more likely to keep hold of the machinery of government or the media, things like that, being a trusted, in quotation marks, source of information. Um, But to be honest, I don't really believe in the concept of like a hard truth anyway. I think that everyone's experiences are so relative that what one person holds to be true, another person could fundamentally disagree with I mean that could be down to opinions (laughs) rather than sort of you know facts and knowledge but I find it sometimes quite difficult to separate the three of them um but I think one thing you can look at is the consequences of of uh opinions and facts and that's something that we're definitely seeing sort of play out with this pandemic at the moment um so for instance some people might say it's an opinion whether or not infecting dis, uh, deter, inf, um, injecting detergent is a, is a cure for COVID-19, whereas <laughs> other people would definitely <laughs> have, a, have strong feelings about that. So I guess that's sort of one way you can see where someone who has power and who has the opportunity to, um, has a platform, uses it to spread misinformation and dangerous ideas. But I feel like for me, people in power who use misinformation do it purposely to, um, they do it with the intent to deceive people. And um, so I hear what you're saying, Mo, in terms of, obviously it depends on um, people's opinions um, and stuff. But I feel like at the same time, um, with people in power, a lot of them know what they're doing. And they're just using misinformation to deceive people and to try and spin a narrative, to spin a narrative that they want. So that's my personal opinion. No, I definitely. It, yeah, I think it's difficult I, as well because we're living in a society where outrage is such a big thing. Um, so, and um, when outrage is such a big thing, people um, 
or media outlets or the government, for example, they want to put across their own um, viewpoints. So the issue sometimes at hand is being able to distinguish between your professional viewpoints and your political viewpoints, which can, which can be really difficult to separate um, in certain circumstances, especially in this pandemic as well. Like this is a time where we really need to have hardcore facts and not be having, you know, PR spins on things or corporations getting involved. We just need the real facts. But then again, how are we going to get the real facts? What really are the real facts? Like, that's a whole question in itself. So it's just about having to decipher what is real. And um, like Mel kind of said, having your own opinion on it. But I do agree with um, Jen sometimes that sometimes some people do, um, they do um, put out misinformation misinformation just to kind of create that you know hysteria and that outrage because what comes from that is could be beneficial for them mm. so i feel like like i feel like um what everyone has just said i feel like there's two sort of two main things that have come out of that discussion um two sort of main points i feel like i've heard is that one um just in sense of is there such a thing as truth even when we talk about information sharing, when we talk about this thing, is there such a thing as truth that we all believe in, that we're all trying to get to in good faith, first of all? Is is that the case? And then secondly, the ways in which um, information is then used, um, potentially uh, this, uh, or the way in which we're able to um like disprove when we get information like so for example the disinfectant thing getting injected with disinfectant and it's sort of quite easily disprovable um i think when when it gets difficult is where where information blurs into like you say you know it's less provable like so for example you can get statistics um that clearly show something um, but they might be just framed in a certain way in which they're not telling the whole truth. They're telling a truth, but not the truth. Um, and they're used to sort of, you know, steer people to have particular opinions. Um, and then we base our beliefs based on that, which is not necessarily completely untrue, but it's clearly not the whole truth either. Yeah, that's no, um, a great point. Sorry, I just have to, because I have a real no, bugbear go- with, um, with surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people use surveys as like empirical knowledge about how oh. something means something like you're really just getting the opinion of people who allow themselves to be questioned for surveys and that's an already tiny percentage of the population exactly. and it's not reflective so I just I just can't stand surveys being used as a I mean there's Definitely. another thing with like opinion polls but like they generally have like broader um you know, like they 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 approach they have like a, a much larger field of participants, like often over a thousand. I think some of the biggest ones have even had, well, much more than that. I don't want to put a figure on it in case I'm wrong, <laughs> but yeah. So that's just another way. When you see a survey or something like that, you cannot take. You, well, I just can't take anything at face value anymore. And I think that's where you can see how some people take that quite, quite um, like a lot further with just a general skepticism of anything in society that's presented to them as truthful, which is why people. Um, you know, you're starting to see, like Shaki mentioned, conspiracy theories. So whether or not, like people thinking that 5G is responsible for this pandemic, um, and it sort of extends as well into um, people who who are sort of anti-establishment, but in a very, in a like a, a minority of people who are anti-establishment, who consider like you know anti-vaccines and climate change deniers and the Earth is flat 
and all that kind of stuff is often there's like a lot of Venn diagrams where there's a lot of those people sitting in the mm. middle mm-hmm. I mean I it's again when I'm hearing you speak I feel like we are we are a, we are a really interesting place in history in terms of this coalition between almost having unparalleled access to information and knowledge um and then on this other hand this level of almost cynicism at everything every piece of knowledge that we that we encounter um a kind of um you know real skepticism in terms of you know this idea that there is potentially a truth to be found or are there just potential truths that we can use to persuade others to align to our way of seeing the world um and it feels very much like at the moment the way information sharing is taking place is is geared around persuasion um and and you know steering people in particular directions to leading them to have particular opinions rather than this sort of collective endeavor of um just general embetterment using you know using knowledge um so that said i mean like i feel like we kind of touched on this already but i kind of want to do want to talk about the government and the handling of this uh you know this pandemic um and and just just sort of generally i mean i just just a general overview um just a, just some key important factors um so on the 30th of january um the who declared a public health emergency um and it wasn't until uh the 29th of february was the first confirmed transmission of covid in the uk um and it really wasn't until march that well the beginning of march that the the prime minister attended his first cobra meeting which is a essentially a meeting of people who are charged with um overseeing like a like a national emergencies essentially um and so this was on the 2nd of march um so this is a month after the who declared a public health emergency um the 2nd of march uh the 3rd of march sorry the prime minister's mostly still shaking hands with people um and is still toting around herd immunity as a as an approach instead of going into lockdown um the 11th of march it's official that covid is a a pandemic um and essentially based upon from what we understand and what we know and i think we'll talk a little bit about sage which is um a group of scientists that advise the government um in terms of again how to approach public health emergencies um essentially a group of experts in their field who come together, make discussions and make decisions and then advise the government what's the best way forward. Um, so on the 11th of March, uh, a lockdown was was rejected um, and large sporting events were still taking place on the 12th of March. Um, we, uh, we were still taking, that, you know, that's big mass gatherings were still taking place. Um, and then we didn't actually officially lock down um, until the 23rd. That was the, that was when we officially locked down the 23rd of March. So essentially a full, pretty much almost two months after um, after we were aware that there was a global, a, a global crisis. Um, and then since then, there's been, you know, accusations of lack of PPE, 
um, the contact and trace um, like a strategy in terms of how we find people that have the virus, we test them, then we trace who they've been in contact with and isolate them. And, and these these things also even uh, our, our airport's been open. We haven't, we, it was only recently we started to isolate people for two weeks like other countries. Um, and so generally, I think we've spoken about this in other 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 uh, episodes in which we feel like the the government handling of this has been a bit um, is a bit a bit fumbled. I think the government fumbled the bag on this one, definitely. Um, but and then obviously, and then the prime minister himself gets COVID, gets actually gets this virus himself, um, and obviously, well, anyway, probably has passed it on to the whole of the cabinet. But anyway. Um, but since then, and, and more specifically, and this is a real serious issue, regardless of, because this show isn't about in terms of analysing the government and what they've done to, you know, where, how they've handled the crisis. I think we probably can agree that it's been, um, it's been poor. But more, more importantly is the way in which information has been shared around this um, in terms of the visibility of the government, in terms of announcements, why decisions are being made? Has there been transparency? So when the government says, or when, you know, NHS frontline staff or, or you know, health workers are saying, we don't have adequate PPE, and the government is saying, yes, you do. Um, these kinds of information wars um, that really, like, you know, and we've discussed it, you know, even previously in our previous show in terms of um, those whose lives are at the most risk, this is imperative. Um, and our ability to trust our information sources is really, really important as well because it, it affects our decision making. Um, so, I guess, yeah, go on, jump in. Oh yeah, um, I was just gonna say, um, just kind of relating to the whole, you know, government um, and their communication. I've always said this that um, number ten, especially, and the government, they struggle um, when it comes to their media comms and their communications. And I think in this whole pandemic, there has been a lack of transparency. And one thing that I've noticed mm -hmm. is that um, um, the prime minister is giving like weekly briefings, as well as um, different ministers are giving weekly briefings on news channels. And for me, I'm just like, well, why are you doing that? Especially when um, you technically should really be doing this in the House of Commons. And secondly, like, they're always contradicting themselves. There's no clear um, agenda. So one person, for example, um, uh, Matt Hancock might say something on the Monday, and then on the Tuesday or the Wednesday, the Prime Minister or someone else will say, actually, that's not what he said, or actually, he didn't mean that. So it's been really bad in terms of, like, their briefings. I think that has been a major issue. Um, and I think that, like, that is something that they really need to work on. And I think especially with British people, um, you really need to be really concise and literally say everything from A to B to Z and I think the problem and I think one of the reasons that we went into lockdown so late is because the British people also would not have had it for this long I mean see what was happening in America for example like 
people love their rights you know they love their right to go to the pub they love their right to especially when there's sunshine they love their right to you know go to the pub and everything so there literally would have been chaos like we would not have been in lockdown for this long and then we would have been in the middle of the peak and people would have been breaking the rules a lot more than they were at present Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was that was the general consensus of uh, Patrick Valance, um, who chairs the um, who chairs Sage. Um, that's generally that's basically was the belief that the reason why they said that the government didn't lock down was because they didn't believe that the public would accept it, um, and it and potentially would have fueled more alternative you know, conspiracy, you know, like kind of those kinds of alternative information sources in terms of, um, you know, the, you know, potentially like believing that the government has a, a misalign, you know, malign um, objectives in terms of locking down early. Um, and I think that really does, that points to something in terms of like, actually how difficult it is to share information because you have one, you had one group as we said, on one hand saying, we need to lock down now, you know, this sort of, this, this air of desperation, looking at what happened in Italy and realising that was what was going to happen to us. And then also having this sort of knowledge that, like you say, people want, you know, want their liberty, their freedoms, and and also are very suspicious of this government. This is, you know, this is, we, we there's already a lot of mistrust in terms of those in power. Um, yeah, and it just prove it just shows why why truth trust is so important. Okay, so looking like looking at like basically what's been said in terms of um, the mistrust in government, basically, what what are our personal thoughts on alternative news sources? Do you mean like sort of more independent media? things like I mean, that as opposed yeah, to sort yeah. of the mass media like the Murdoch owned press and even things like you know the Guardian or the New Statesman because we don't want to discriminate amongst sort of you know the political spectrum um so more things like independent news is that your yeah uh, absolutely yeah I definitely think it's an important source because often it provides more of a an um an insight into how particular communities particularly marginalized communities are are coping and or not coping in times of well times like these and any other time um but I think the thing that I most look for when I'm reading news or trying to take in information if I do remember to do this is what who else they quote if there's any evidence what evidence they're using to back up their claims um like if there's anything that you can sort of what what qualifies it from being like an opinion piece or a commentary to a source of information that I can use to either improve my circumstances or someone else's. Um, yeah, I, I agree. That makes everything like a GCSE <laughs> exam, but it does help in terms of sort of put like contextualizing information and putting yourself as a consumer of that. Like you've got to be a responsible consumer, haven't you? Cause like you were saying earlier, if you don't consume information responsibly and you spread it, then you are kind of complicit. I mean, I'm not saying you're being hostile, but you're complicit in spreading misinformation if you don't question the sources with which, um, like, that you're taking in, I think. Mm. I agree with what Mel said um, in terms of alternative um, media sources and stuff. Um, sometimes when looking at um, 
well, when, when I've been looking at COVID-related um, stuff, I have looked at the main mainstream media outlets, but I've, well, I haven't watched news. I've read mainstream news um, newspapers, but then I've also read, like, online um, blogs like Black Ballad and stuff and seeing, um, you know, in terms of, like, how COVID has affected, um, is affecting more BAME people than... Um, um, than any other race um, or than white people sorry um, I've looked at you know what they're kind of saying and stuff because I feel like they also have um, perspectives from where I'm coming from as well and also um, I feel like they don't try and um, because they're the media is made for black people um, they don't try and minimize our voice um and don't or don't try and speak for us if you get what I mean. Whereas other media outlets, there will be like people who are not BAME writing about BAME issues, and I'm just like, but you're not BAME, so like, why are you writing? You don't you you don't really understand. It's all second-hand information. It. Exactly. So um yeah, so I do agree with you in terms of um that and then I also agree with you in terms of always checking the sources and the type of people that they created because sometimes I may read things and if it's um they've quoted someone who I feel could be like sexist or racist or something I'm I'm gonna take you know the information with, with a pinch of salt do you know what I mean um so yeah I agree with that how about you Queen? that's actually really true to that point that you uh, made um about um black ballad for example and like um all those kind of smaller um media outlets because a lot of the times unfortunately you can read articles and there's going to be some racial undertones or unconscious bias in them because obviously not all racism is overt and sometimes like it can be so hard to um to believe us and sometimes the main crux of what you know major media outlets um 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 what is the word i'm looking for what they aim to do is to basically create some sort of emotion whether that is negative or positive and most of the time it can be negative to engage that kind of outrage towards people and to sensationalize a topic because that's where their business comes from making sure that they've got the best headline you know they've got the best um sound bites and it's really making sure that you don't just focus on that especially in this era of social media and twitter you're seeing so many opinions every second like at first hand you've got to be able to move away from the noise and really consider what is information that is beneficial for you and has some sort of truth to it as well so it's just you just have to kind of as bad as it sounds like you actually have to question a lot of things that you read and um make sure that once you read it go and check if someone else has written something on it from a different perspective as well and um who is who is the person that wrote it as well what is their motive and I'm not gonna lie I've been one of those people who have read something immediately like read something and immediately I've um, shared it and I've tried to be more um intentional with how I do things or more like um yeah I'm more intentional about how I do things now because I'm just like because there's been times where I've tweeted something and when I've gone to read it somewhere else that's not how it really happened do you know what I mean so I feel like if we're gonna be um people 
or if yeah if we're going to try if we're going to be people who are trying to raise awareness of certain situations and stuff we need to be mindful of the sources and what we're retweeting or or rather like take a step back and be like okay you know all the stuff that we've raised about you know question um who is the motives questioning you know who they've quoted etc before we start retweeting um and yeah retweeting things or taking in that information so yeah I think social media, uh, social uh, media companies, for example, and um, I think they do have an onus to kind of make sure that misinformation and um, things that are really false um, don't have the opportunity to kind of spread as much as they do. I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, but did anyone like hear about, uh, it might have been fake news for all I know, that, you know, WhatsApp was trying to reduce the number of people that you could broadcast um a certain message to oh yeah so something like that because I think that is something that is really good especially when the amount of crap and rubbish that comes through whatsapp is so alarming and once it spreads it spreads like wildfire so I think like stuff like that is really but is that but is but I mean is I mean I, I have to question that is that a good thing necessarily is restricting is it is restricting knowledge the answer because in in a, in a sense who gets to decide um, who who gets to control that and who gets to control those knowledge sources? Um, and should we not like should our focus not be on creating a more informed, critical thinking group of people who can engage with the knowledge that comes in front of them, or do we have to resort to censoring essentially well I think you can do both, but when you're fighting fires, there's no point in installing a fire alarm sometimes you just got to get the hose and put it out like in parts of india for instance whatsapp was being used to um effectively lynch muslims because they were saying that islamic communities were spreading coronavirus so people were literally going and murdering them and that was one of the reasons why they put the curbs on forwarding the number of people you can forward because whatsapp is so heavily used for misinformation in communities like in india as one example um, so that was part of what drove them to reduce the number of people that you could forward stuff onto because it was creating um, like hate hate crimes and worse. Uh, in with, with the African aunties as well that just be sending information. God, they are like the worst. They will be every single thing that they get, they will be sending it to you, and some of the stuff is not true. Like oh, so I'm I'm not gonna lie with that. I was I was quite happy with how they restricted the limiting um but then at the same time when it's when it's issues that i'm passionate about and stuff obviously i don't want them to restrict it because i want to i was about to say but when because when you're searching for information um i've noticed that there's definitely been a lot more limitations about the information you're able to search for you already either you're already Either you already have access to particular news uh, sources, either you or you're already aware of certain people that are have access to certain types of information, and you're already to already able to access those, or you're within networks that sh- that share that knowledge. Um, but I've definitely seen during this time there's definitely been a limitation and restriction on what kinds of knowledge people are able to access. I mean, even on YouTube, they've got. You know, you, I don't even think you can say 5G on, on YouTube, for example, um, without those videos, you know, becoming, you know, essentially uh, shadow banned and, and things like that. Um, yeah, the algorithms, yeah. They're, they're adjusting all of them yeah, to make they've it. Adjusted all the, yeah, exactly. And demonetizing um, stuff that's just blatant lies or that is considered to be unhelpful. Things like that. And I mean, I, 
I think it's about balance as well, you know, because what about that woman that received all those um those forwarded messages and um she um lost her job and was she not convicted with that? I think again oh, the police like, officer. Oh yeah, yeah. And sometimes like it's not your choice. Like we receive so much information that it's not my choice that I want to receive it. So there should be some sort of limit towards me having to receive all this um information that I'm receiving a lot of the time. And most of it, like I said, a lot of it is bad is just misinformation and it's spreading false things and it can lead to people you know losing their jobs or dying for example so I think that you have to find there has to be some sort of balance within this um I don't know what but is there, is there, but is there a sense in which I mean I feel I feel like we're touching on something here because I feel like there's a sense in which um our, our journey to truth or our journey to have these conversations around finding out what is true and what isn't I feel like we're prevented from doing that with, with in terms of the speed of information and the way in which we, we are forced to make quick decisions, the way in which, uh, you know, there's a lot of mistrust already in terms of the information that we're getting that people turn to other sources of information. And then that then obviously pollutes this, you know, this information ecology, as it was called on this um you know known as this informational ecology this this kind of information brain that we all have access to and um, we're all, all trying to extract knowledge in in ways that can benefit us and benefit ourselves individually as well as society um and it just seems to me that it, it we live in a clickbait society that's the problem yes want, exactly they yeah. want information they want cheap information and they want it straight away Quickly. because it gratifies you that's why facebook yes. just designs their app designs the website to keep you on it for as long as possible because they adjust it so that it always has your it just always has your attention and once you think oh i'm going to put my phone down they manage to find something that they know will keep you scrolling for another five minutes so you look at the adverts it's all a medium for adverts and all this kind of stuff um so it's not in their interest. It's not in their interest to have us read like a seven-minute Financial Times article, whether or not that is quality information is debatable in itself. But when you have that versus like a slideshow of twenty celebrities in bikinis, you know, one is going to lead on to another one very quickly, and then you're consuming a lot of trash. But, that but this is a lot why, of money. This is why I feel like we need people need to have social media detoxes as well because you know it takes you away from stuff like that and um you know where you can go where you have where you're going to have to go into other forms of uh, media so like news papers magazines blogs and stuff that rather than social media if you know what I mean so I'm a big big advocate for taking social media detoxing and stuff especially when you're going through um things that um COVID that's why like me I I was onto it I came off went back on and now I'm off again I just feel like it's so important to do that during times like this because it's just it's, it can be very traumatic with all the yeah, stuff yeah. that we're seeing and it can really and it can scare people you know I didn't I did hardly any work today at my job I'm gonna I mean because I was on Twitter and I was so heartbroken and outraged at everything happening in America and in London and in the UK right now but I could not tear myself away from it I could not put it down I could not stop looking at it I just I was just addicted to to feet to trying to share the burden not share the burden of pain because that's not but you know what I mean like you want to know as much as you want 
yeah like because you feel that at this point you're you're invested you're engaged and you're angry and you're sad and you can't stop feeling like that and it just feeds you more and more and more because you feel like well I'm, I'm tapping into everyone else's feelings of this who are putting it out there on twitter so it's like you're engaging with others but you're not really engaging with others is there is there a sense in which there's a difference between like slow knowledge and fast knowledge because it seems to me like we have these like you say these like really sort of fast emotive kind of access to information that drives this very emotive response that sometimes it's you know that could last for a few days and then you know suddenly we're on to the next thing and then it's the next thing that we we find very emotive but there's something to be said about slow knowledge which is sometimes a lot more nuanced um a lot more complex and that we turn away from engaging with information in that way because there's not suddenly like straight black and white answers and really we're looking for like reassurance security black and white answers so we're turning to these kinds of ways of receiving our information like you say through social media um but they're not really serving us in terms of long term how you know how we really gaining reliable a reliable sense of the world in which we live in i think also to add to that i think also we as people we are um we take it for granted and we're lazy in a sense that a lot of people will not want to read or collect you know information that they deem to be for example a whole article they don't want to read the ins and outs of it they just want to read like short little segments they might just even just read the headline of it and think that they've got the whole picture based on that so I think also we as people like we really need to slow down when it comes to social media as well and just kind of step back and think because this is exactly what they want the reason that they are doing you know this fast um this fast media um these fast um stories is because they want to and they want you to feel that emotion um to be able to react to it and that reacting is through retweeting you know commenting on this or or sharing it to a wider audience and i think sometimes you really just need to slow down sometimes um but yeah it's difficult i think also that we have a 24 hour news cycle which is only which is still a really new concept in terms of sort of media it's only been around for a couple of decades you used to be able to go to sleep and not get al- you wouldn't be alert throughout the night what was going on you'd have to turn up turn on the news you watch the news at the morning at one o'clock and at six o'clock and at ten and that's when you get your information the newspapers would be printed once twice a day but now it's like if something happens you need a response in the next 20 minutes you need something to do so everything is just crisis management and well also there's that- a sense in which sorry um, no, I was going to just say um, what Mel said is actually a really good point about crisis management, because that is exactly what we were seeing over the last couple of days with Dominic um, Cummings as well, with the whole crisis management. And everyone expect, for example, if I just give a bit of context, like, so obviously I work for an MP and when that happened, everyone was expecting my boss to have an answer within like five minutes. We were getting hundreds of emails about it, but everyone just wants to be able to react in the moment. And sometimes they don't want you to just like step back and actually assess the situation before anything. They just want it to be fast. Everything has to happen there and there and then. Like so we really need to like slow down in this kind of like when it comes to like stuff like this. 
Do you know what I agree? I, I, I definitely agree with that because I'm I'm not gonna lie. I sometimes when things are happening, especially when it's something that I'm really passionate about, I'm a really reactive person. I want to respond quickly. Um, I want I want something to be um um done quickly and stuff, and that's because my emotions and stuff are tied to it. Um, and I guess that that's that's the same as with um, a lot of um, people in terms of the whole Dominic Cummings things. People have lost their family members. People um, have lost friends. People are, um, have sick relatives who they can't visit because they've been told they need to stay in. But Dominic Cummings is traveling however many so, miles so just far to, away. Just, just to just to add a little bit of context, just to, <clears throat> just for those that don't know, Dominic Cummings is a senior advisor of the government. Um, and was found to have broken the lockdown rules, essentially travelled 250, 60 miles to Durham from London to stay at his, uh, to stay at a, a family home um, and also had a day trip as well and and, and also, ha- and I think travelled with the virus, but there's a lot of holes in his story, essentially. There's a lot of uh, things that don't really add up um, and this has dominated the news for the week, actually. If you don't know about this story, then maybe you're not on social media <laughs> maybe you've been living in a cave because it's literally dominated the whole week um yeah and i mean i i really would like to talk about like the the, the implication i mean in terms of the implications of that sorry jen to, to to interrupt but what what do you feel what do you feel are the implications of that like more generally in terms of obviously i think we could generally get a taste of the the collective mood but um but but on a really serious note what are the implications of a senior government advisor found to be essentially breaking the law um and that yeah. there'd be no consequence for that and it's it's i'm not gonna lie it's very frustrating um because as we said there are many people who would have loved to go and see family members there's people who would have loved to attend um, attend funerals there's people who'd love to do a lot of things um but they were unable to because they were told well if you do you're breaking the law but yet a government minister is doing a government minister a government advisor sorry is doing that and it just makes it seem like okay well these rules apply to everyone else but apart from people that are in power do you know what i mean and um i just feel um as though um you know george um George Dominic. I don't know where I got George from. Dominic um is um Dominic does deserve to be um sacked. I feel like he should be sacked or he should be noble enough to resign. Um the fact that even members of their of the Conservative Party um are asking for him to be sacked or for him to resign says a lot. Um says that, you know they definitely don't agree with what's going on. And they also know that, you know, with what he's been saying, there's a lot of half truths or even some lies in there, you know? So, yeah. That's, I, that's yeah. My... I was just going to say um, three things. Um, basically, that I just, what I don't understand is why number 10, they didn't just come out and say it from the first place. Like I said, it's a lack of transparency. So I think the outrage wouldn't have been as much as it is. And I think um, with the whole Dominic Cummings thing, I think it also begs the question, like um, we've been talking, like, is information political? Because was it not just on Wednesday that um, I think it was BBC had to issue a statement about its impartiality on this topic? Um, Because I think it was on Newsnight they um, 
they made some comments and it didn't seem to be impartial um and the bbc is not supposed to and the bbc is not supposed to do things like that so what it's doing is trying to provoke outrage um so certain topics provoke outrage and then information is political and then just everyone who consumes that information as well it's just getting that viewpoint so that's when i said before it's so difficult to um to separate your political and professional viewpoints, um, especially when you're trying to give impartial knowledge, but you need to do so in certain circumstances. But again, even with Dominic Cummings, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, think that people should now go and you know do what they want to do because if the police stops you, you're not going to get the same kind of um, benefits that he got. They they're going to fine you or they're going to um, do more. So I just think that again like you said before Jen you're right that you know it's frustrating because some people see it as there's one rule for you and then one rule for the rest of us who have made so many sacrifices in this period. I do think you what you I think I agree just to pick up on your point in terms of the way in which something like that uh, breaks down the trust between people and the government and at a time when uh, when trust is already at a, a record low um but you also said something about information being political. I mean, it, it, do uh, what are our thoughts on that? Is political um, is information inevitably political? Does it have to be always? Mel, would you like to speak? I think, <laughs> well, I, I think it is just because even if you're trying to be as impartial as possible, you'll still have, for want of a better word, like an agenda, a view, a bias on an issue or a topic. So you could try and discuss it in the most plain terms ever, but you'll still be, um, you'll still have an angle, you'll still have a perspective and that will come across in how you see things and share things. Um, but I think it's whether or not you use your, it's, it's whether or not it it's weaponized, I think is, is perhaps, is perhaps the question. Like if you're using it deliberately to either, you know, to cause harm or, um, things like that because things will always be political just having an opinion on something is a political act I think that's agree. my opinion that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> I agree um, I, I agree with you. What, yeah. what about you Shaka? what do you think um I, I really think it doesn't have to be I think my my I really I really still maybe maybe it's naive but I still feel that there's a part of me that believes in a collective good um and that actually a lot of what we need to do in terms of how we share information is about our relations with each other about trust relations I think it's a little bit more and I feel like I I do think that within the system that we're currently living in I mean even for example why does Twitter want you why did why is it trying to gain an emotive reaction from you and you know it's because they want as many people you you know you want as many people using your platform in order to you know extract you know there is no you know there's advertising on twitter but it's also to extract your your data your opinion there's money to be made in data now um so i think yes information is political but i do think it's also shaped by the fact that we live in a capitalist society um and now data and information has become valuable in a way that um slightly different now in terms of like its relationship to power um 
I think we need to do an episode on capitalism because you find a way to always bring capitalism into everything. Always bring the C word. But you know, but I, I know. think but I think it's important because it's not this invisible, but it's not an invisible, we think of it as this sort of invisible, inevitable, but it's a superstructure that is shaping our lives every single day, the way that we do things. And we think it's inevitable. And I think even when we, if we look at it, and I mean, admittedly, I'm going to admit my own bias, obviously, I'm an anti-capitalist. Um, you know, I'll I, I, you know, be honest about that. But I also do... I think, you know, in terms of if we're going to have a conversation about information, we also have to understand that we are we are working within an information ecology that is also shaped by this superstructure of this economic and political system that we live in. It's not accidental. Um, and I think part of the part of the discussion on information has to be looking at that, you know, turning a mirror on that. Does it have to be this way? And is there other ways of doing things? Um, is this way of doing things affecting other ways of doing things and actually is there more beneficial way of us to live and I think I you know I'm interested in those kind of conversations and um sounds like a Marxist class like in a like in a site like in an academic way like you know like Marxist way of looking at um the superstructures in society and stuff like that like <laughs> I have read a bit of Marx. I'm not. Yeah, Marx, I, I thought I you said superstructure, and I thought. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, because it's so. But that's what I mean. It's so large. We think it's invisible, and it's not because it's shaping our lives every day. And part of how we analyze and critically analyze information has to be has, that has to be on the table as well. Surely, for me, yeah. anyway. No, I agree. Like it's all dynamic stuff. Society just doesn't appear, and it just doesn't stop. There is no mm. like it's all a thought process in a way it's all been like a social experiment in how mm. we ended up here right now because of everything that happened before it mm. developing yes. yeah I agree with you <laughs> definitely need to have an episode of that yeah we yeah. Did. well actually we were going to actually before lockdown we had um yeah we were we had that. We so we, we, we'll pick that up in back to basics our back to basics yeah. episode um but I think um I'm gonna round up now um and just and just say that this has been a really, this is a real large topic. I really feel like we haven't even covered, there's so much more that we could have covered. I feel like I'm looking at my notes here and thinking there's so many questions I haven't asked and um, so many f more things I think we, we could have spoken about. Um, uh, we did all Yeah, maybe do a part two. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Cool. But let's, let's put that in the, let's put that in the ether. Um, so we just, we also want to just, um, just make a quick note. Uh, we did want to talk about uh, George Floyd um, and his extrajudiciary killing by the police. Obviously, we're not going to be able to get into that, but just want to simply say rest in power. Um, keep the, the fire burning for justice to keep going. Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and also, you know, we've got to just find ways of um, empowering each other through our trauma um, acknowledging our trauma when these things happen and the history and the context that these things have happened, um, but also find ways to empower ourselves and overcome um, and strengthen ourselves in the face of, uh, yeah, these really um, painful events. Um, so, yeah, uh, this dedicated to George Floyd and uh, rest in power. And, um, yeah, on that note, 
I just want to say uh, thank you to everyone who's listening. Thank you to all our supporters and subscribers. Again, remember, we have a newsletter. This will be coming out with this episode, so check that out. Um, again, find us on social media, the underscore consensus underscore on Twitter and on Instagram and use the hashtag consensus podcast if you want to uh, join the conversation. Um, and anything else anyone has to add before we say goodbye? No. Ah, you said everything. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy the episode. <laughs> okay. So maybe a part two. So thank you to everyone. Um, and we'll see you again soon. Bye. Peace, peace. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.